Welcome to Samford University's Campus Worship. We hope you enjoy the presentation. I see that uh, many of you I've seen each week throughout the semester. We, this is our first semester with this particular lecture series, Connecting Christian Faith and Thought, across the scope of the different academic disciplines here at Samford. And I appreciate the fact that we've had a diversity of students attend and a, a diversity of topics and faculty members. And I'm grateful to those faculty members across campus who've been willing to set aside some time to prepare and to deliver these lectures. And so I'm appreciative today to uh, Dr. Mark Ginolette, who will be delivering today's lecture on the Old Testament and the Trinity. Uh, Mark has been a professor of divinity at, at, at Beeson Divinity School. His area is Old Testament, and he's been here since 2005. He came about a year before I came to Sanford, and since that time, he and I have been pretty good friends, and we've been confidants and talked about a wide range of different issues, and I've appreciated his, his collegiality and his willingness to come over to this side of campus from time to time and speak on these things. He is uh, published in a variety of different topics, including Isaiah and Karl Barth and Old Testament criticism. He currently serves as canon theologian at the Cathedral Church of the Advent here in Birmingham. He did his PhD at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And he is married. He and his wife, Naomi, have three sons and a daughter. So y'all are busy. Yes. So um, without any further delay, please welcome Dr. Mark Ginolette. Okay. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to talk for probably about 35 minutes. You can hold me to that if you don't mind. Um, I'm not really sure how you do that, but um, I'm going to talk for about 35 to 40 minutes and then we'll do Q&A together. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad the any of you are here. I mean, a lecture at 3 o'clock in the afternoon um, on the Trinity, that's a pretty sizable uh, hurdle. And then on the Old Testament, that's, a, that's another hurdle as well. Um, I, I, you know, I, I take it as a kind of personal mission and task and my own vocational calling um, to think and to encourage people to try as best they can to exercise Marcion's persistent ghost in the life of the church. Um, for those of you who know who Marcion is, he's kind of the first bad guy um, in the history of the church, if you find such terms helpful, her her heretical. Um, Marcion arises on the scene in the second century. Um, we don't really have any primary sources that Marcion, Marcion left us, but in effect, what Marcion did was to make a claim that his understanding of God um, which was sort of born out of a kind of a Gnostic worldview, but that his understanding of God didn't comport with the God that he read about in the Old Testament. Um, so he's like, well, let's chuck the Old Testament and we'll get rid of any parts of the New Testament that sound too Old Testament-y, um, and we'll get rid of that as well. And the early church responded with a plum, actually, and a lot of fervor against Marcion's basic instinct about his view of God, and more importantly, how Marcion's presupposed understanding of God functioned for him in an interpretive way. 
In other words, my conception, my a priori conception about who God is, is functioning in such a way as to cause me to have to think that certain biblical texts aren't authoritative or aren't informative on the theological plane, and therefore my a priori notions are, are, are the sort of driving interpretive tool rather than the way in which the Christian tradition is by and large operated, and that is our conception of God has to be conceived of the ways in which the Bible talks about God. So I, um, you know, I don't know how you feel about the Old Testament, and I don't know, I mean, I had a phone conversation with my own mother, um, bless her heart, um, a few years ago where my mother said, in effect, um, I, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm reading Isaiah now, and it seems to me that the God of the Old Testament is a little bit of a crank. Um, but once you get into the New Testament, the edges seems to, seem to have worn off a, a bit. And I remember hearing my mother saying that and, and thinking, my own mother is a kind of neo-Marcionite, I guess, or something like that. that. That's not true. Okay, so that's not really what we're talking about. Today we're talking about the Old Testament and the Trinity. Now we're going to dive in a little bit here, and uh, hopefully we'll sort of come back in and out. But um, most of you have done some Bible classes of some sort, so you recognize that the identity of God in the Old Testament is primarily understood from the standpoint of the revelation of God through his name, which is Adonai, or the Tetragrammaton. So have any of you taken Hebrew here or done a little Hebrew work? Um, the Tetragrammaton are four Hebrew letters, Yod, He, Vav, He, um, which from a certain standpoint of, of out of respect for the divine name, most readers when they come across that name will not, will not vocalize it, they'll say Adonai in the place of it. Um, so th the question becomes, from a Christian theological standpoint, how do, I, how do we identify the God of the Old Testament who has identified his name as Adonai? Who, who is he? How does he reveal himself? And, and more pressing to the point for our, our issues today, and how can we, on the far side of modernity, in any way speak faithfully or intellectually honestly about the identity of that God of the Old Testament as one whose name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? How can one make metaphysical claims about the being of the God of the Old Testament and do so in such a way that has to be understood from a modern standpoint as anachronistic, like looking at a scene, a medieval painting, that sees the guards at Jesus' tombs in Ponce de Leon outfits. I mean, you see a painting like that and you know, well, Roman, Roman guards didn't look like that. That's anachronistic. And the God of the Old Testament is, uh, certainly cannot be understood and identified as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That, that has to be a historical anachronism. And these are issues that in our time are especially critical and acute because we do live on the far side of the rise of historical consciousness in, in the intellectual disciplines. I mean, it's a fascinating thing, frankly, to think about the fact that in the 16th and the early 17th century, there weren't history departments per se. That was something that was awaiting in time for independent departments of history um, to come onto the scene. And one can say in the mid-18th century and then into the early 19th century that historical consciousness became a significantly important facet of, of, uh, of the modern mind. And this has significant impact on the way in which we interpret the Bible. 
Can the Bible be interpreted in any other way beyond the horizon of its original historical moment? This may be something you want to bat around in the Q&A time. Is it interpretively responsible to read biblical texts and to read them in a way that allows their sense-making, that allows their literal sense to be understood beyond the ways in which historical human personae might have understood those texts in the current moment. Because this is where I think we need to make a distinction today, and then we're going to get into the Bible. I think we need to make a distinction when wrestling with these interpretive issues between ontology, that is the being of God, and noesis, or our understanding of God's being. Because, I think again, this is where our Christian confession of faith bears on our reading of the Bible, and our reading of the Bible bears on our confession of faith. We're going to get into this today. And that is, God was not waiting in time, this is completely bad uh, um, um, uh, linguistic usage here, but God was not waiting in time to triune himself. Um, God's triune identity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in an eternal communion of love, uh, in a reciprocal communion of love eternally, was not waiting to be actualized in time. That is God's being. If I can borrow from Colossians chapter 1 in the famous um, hymn there of Jesus, he proceeds all things. So how does his proceeding all things, which is an ontological category, it's a category of God's being, how does his preceding all things bear on the interpretation of the Old Testament when it's quite likely that if you asked Moses, are you a Trinitarian, he would look at you like, what? And can you pass the falafel, please? I don't know if they ate falafel back there. I don't know what you're talking about, right? So one could say, in effect, that the framing of of Trinitarian theology or Nicene faith is something that awaits time and the fullness of revelation for a proper framing of the issue. But that's our understanding of the issue in time and space. That doesn't necessarily correspond to the ontology of God's being, which precedes our full knowledge of it. So that distinction is an important, to my mind, an important interpretive distinction to, uh, to be made, a distinction between our understanding and our knowledge and the actual being of God himself. So this is where Christian confession of faith, which for me is a priori. Now, I don't know how you think about these things, but um, I'm, I'm robustly Anselmian in my view of Christian knowledge, or, or, or forget the, the attribute of their Christian, of knowledge in general. And that is faith precedes understanding, or I believe in order that I might understand. A confession of faith becomes the gateway toward understanding and knowledge. And this is an issue that becomes highly problematized in modernity with the rise of historical consciousness, but with also the rise of the subje subjective self. And what happens in a period like the early 17th century with Spinoza, who comes onto the scene and writes an important tractate on philosophy and political theology that in effect raises significant questions about what it means to interpret and read the Bible and to understand its claims about God and its claims about ethics and its claims about the world. Well, what happens in that moment that then gives rise to even someone who had good intentions like John Locke, I think, 
to say what we do is we suspend belief. You set belief to the side. You do your work, whether it's biblical exegetical work or whether it's philosophical work, you do your work on the basis of the evidence itself, and then you allow on the back end belief to come back in. So belief is suspended. There was a book that was written in 2007 by John Barton, Oriel Professor of Old Testament at, at Oxford University on modern criticism. It's a very good book, actually. And of the three character traits that uh, Barton talks about in that book that define modern criticism, one of the three is the bracketing out of theological commitments on the front end of the exegetical enterprise. You bracket out belief, and then you let belief come back in. Why? For the sake of intellectual honesty. And this is where I think the Augustinian tradition as received through Anselm, and again, for me, received through the Reformed tradition, would look at that and go, no, I don't suspend belief. In fact, I believe in order that I might understand. Now, let me just say this to you. That is not a bury one's head in the sand approach to the epistemological issues and the difficult philosophical issues of the faith. What it is, though, is it provides for us a context in which we engage the issues of the Bible and the Bible's problems. And I know you all are sophisticated enough to know that there are some issues that one has to deal with when you get into the Bible. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to go, uh, did, Ju did Judas die by hanging or did his gut spill out by falling off a cliff? Which one? All right. So we recognize that there are issues that have to be dealt with. And don't think that modernity was waiting to make those issues public. You can read Calvin, you can read Luther, you can read Augustine, City of God, and you will see all of these stalwarts of the faith recognize that there were, scare quotes, problems in the Bible that had to be dealt with. But they did not suspend belief in an attendance to those problems. They engaged the problems of the Bible from the standpoint, from the epistemic standpoint of a confession of faith that what God says is true, and it's to be engaged, and it's to be, it's to be affirmed. So all that is significant, to my mind, is significant to our, to our discussion today about the Old Testament and the Trinity. Because I come at the subject matter from the standpoint of a confession of faith. And what is that confession of faith? That God in his own providence has given his word to his church, to his people, and to the world. And how has he given us that word? In the material form of an Old Testament and a New Testament. Not to be collapsed the one into the other, to recognize that they both come with their own particular idiom and idiolect, but in their own idiom, the Old Testament and the New Testament share a common subject matter, namely, God's triune revelation of himself in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. Brevard Childs, who's a bit of a hero of mine, Brevard Childs said, the battle for the Trinity in the fourth century was not a battle against the Old Testament, it was a battle for the Old Testament. I play this game with my students across the quad at Beeson. I say, listen, if on your own someone were to ask you, um, go in the, and, and write a Christology paper and prove your Christological views, or Trinity paper, and prove your Christological views on the basis of the Bible, how many of you instinctually would go to the Old Testament to craft and shape those arguments? How many of you would go to Proverbs 8 to try to make an argument for the eternal generation of the Son. Both Arius, who was not Trinitarian, and Athanasius, who was, both of them engaged that text to try to come to terms with what it was claiming about divine wisdom that both Arius and Athanasius understood the referent of that to be the second person of the Trinity, 
or the, or, or, Jesus, or, 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 or the Logos. What I find fascinating about that is Arius, who we kind of deem heretical now, Arius and Athanasius both agreed on the referent of wisdom. This has to be a referent to the Logos. But now we need to wrestle with what this text is claiming about that person. So I don't know if you've, if you've um, engaged in any of these sort of issues about how the New Testament canon was formed. These all get rather sort of hairy and, and complicated. But one of, the, one of the unfortunate and I think deleterious views on New Testament canon formation that has come out within the last hundred years, back to Adolf von Harnack, is this notion that the early church operated without a canon for uh, the first four centuries. But what Harnack and his particular progeny tend to emphasize in that is that uh, the, the, new, the canon that he's talking about there is the New Testament canon. What's often lost in this conversation is the fact that the Old Testament canon was assumed from the beginning of the, early, of the apostolic era, era and the early church to be God's word for his people. So much so that Hans von Kampenhausen in his book on the formation of the Christian Bible said, the problem in the early church was not, what do we do with our Old Testament scriptures or our Hebrew scriptures now that Jesus is here? In fact, the problem was quite reverse. What do we do with Jesus in light of the assumed anterior character of our Old Testament or our Hebrew scriptures? And what happens? The Hebrew scriptures become the grammar book. They provide for us a grammar and a linguistic system for understanding the singularity of God and the subsistence of personal relations within that one singular Godhead. So, what do we want to look at today in the Bible? Exodus chapter 3. If you've got cell phones or something like that, we can look at this together. That took way longer than I planned. But you're going to keep me on track, you told me. Um, Exodus chapter 3. This is a significant text in the Old Testament. Um, one that my kids love for me to read. Daddy, let us hear about the burning tree. Well, here's the burning tree story. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he, fled the, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of, of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a, from within a bush. And Moses saw that through the bush, that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, as you would, I think I'll go and see this strange sight. I'm reading from the NIV, by the way. Why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, uh, here I am. And God said, don't, take your, your, uh, don't come any closer. Take your sandals off. This is holy ground. And then you know what happens next. God tells Moses, you're going to go um, to the land of Egypt, and you're going to be the means by which I release my people from captivity. So I'm sending you now. Go. But Moses said, um, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I'll be with you. And then Moses says in verse 13, but when I go, you can tell Moses isn't excited about this. He says, when I go, they're going to ask me your name. This is significant. What shall I tell them is your name? And God said to Moses, and here's your Hebrew for the day, Ehyeh, Esher, Ehyeh, I am who I am. 
I am has sent me to send you, has sent me to you. So coming to terms with the significance of this encounter and the connotative force of the name is no mean task. So along with the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the majority of the Christian interpretive tradition, and I'll toss Maimonides in there for fun. The revelation of God's name in Exodus 3 speaks of his essence or his being, his pure existence or his eternal presence where future and past enfold into God's eternal present. Existence resides at the heart of God's godness. He is ha-on in the Septuagint. So I am that I am is a claim about God's subsistent being, his essential self. This particular essentialist reading of, the, of God's nature has come under some significant scrutiny in the 20th century. And it's beyond the, the purview today to go too far. But put simply, essentialist categories raise the question when encountering God, um, what is God? What does it mean to be God? But narratival approaches in the 20th century have said, well, maybe we need to ask first, before we move to essentialist categories, who is God? A bottom-up approach, if you will. So the lines dividing God's eternal self from his creative redemptive a revelation of himself in time begin to blur in this narrative. So if you look at a close reading of Exodus chapter 3, and I, I don't want to get sort of bogged down here, but if you look at a close reading of Exodus chapter 3, what you begin to see is the divine name and the revelation of the name seems to be located within the unfolding of the Exodus narrative itself. I am who I am. Or maybe another rendering, if you don't mind me taking the liberty, and I think this is a fair rendering. I am who I will be. Or I will be who I will be. One of the most important commentators on Exodus, Jewish commentator by the name of Beno Yaakov, he renders Ehye, Esher, Ehye, I am who I am as, I will be who I will be. In other words, this is not a claim about an essential, a category of God's being. This is a claim where God is saying to Moses, you want to know what my name is? You want to know who I am? I am who I will be. You'll know me in the unfolding of the redemptive encounter that you're about to have with me. For example, here's a verse that's a source critic's dream verse. Exodus chapter 6, verse 2 and 3. God said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now you see that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's that tetragrammaton. I am Adonai. But I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Elyon, God Almighty. But by my name Adonai, the tetragrammaton, I did not make myself known. Boy, that's a source critic's dream verse. Why? Well, it seems to intimate what one might think about the religious historical development of Israel. When you look back at Abraham and the patriarchs, they knew El. They were uh, borrowing from Canaanite religions. And in time, the religion of El grew up within Israel's ranks and then became the uh, religion of uh, Yahweh and Adonai, probably sometime in the early, in the early monarchy. And then in time, these things, these things get... But what you have are the residue of older religious historical sensibilities. They worshiped El. 
Well, this is all, this, this, that's fine. That's interesting. Maybe there's parts of that that's true. But the problem with the canonical presentation that we have is the patriarchal history is rife with references to Adonai. One only need recall Abraham's encounter at the Oaks of Mamre in Genesis 18 to problematize an account of the divine name as presented in certain quarters of critical theory. According to the canonical presentation, Abraham knew Yahweh. So what is Exodus 3 claiming if it says they only knew El Elyon and not the Tetragrammaton? The revealing of the divine name in Exodus 3 and Exodus 6 locates God's self-determination to reveal himself within the nexus of his redemptive actions. It is not that Abraham did not know the Semitic phonemes of the divine name. Nevertheless, Abraham's position with the divine economy before the Exodus event limits his knowledge of the name's soteric significance, especially given this crucial and defining episode in Israel's covenantal history. This particular moment in the divine economy renders the divine name and its significance in a fuller redemptive frame that Abraham and the patriarchs were not privy to. By the way, this whole name theology is fascinating. I think this helps us make sense of some of the strange things that Jesus says. And you know he says some really strange things. At the end of the high priestly prayer in John 17, what does it say? What's the last thing that Jesus says in his prayer? which, by the way, I think is holy ground text. Jesus says, I made known your name to them, and I will make it known. Well, that's interesting. What does it mean that he made known your name to them, and now I will make it known? Did that mean that the, that the disciples didn't know the Tetragrammaton? They didn't know the name of God? Now, I know they didn't say it out of respect, but they didn't know what it was. They hadn't seen it or heard it in synagogue. That's not the claim. The claim is a soteric claim. The claim is a redemptive claim. Jesus is saying, I've made known your redemptive presence to these people in a way that they had not known before, but tomorrow when the passion starts and I go to the cross and then I burst from the tomb again, that is going to be your name on display to its fullest. It's a redemptive context for the name. And that finds its logic back in the book of Exodus as well. Well, why is all that important? It's important because the identity of God, the name of God in the Old Testament, is linked to the saving, his own saving movement toward his people. That's who God is. Do, do you remember the crazy scene in, in Exodus chapter 34 when um, Moses is up on the mountain and he's having an encounter with God and God breaks the speech uh, midway and he says, um, you need to go down to your people. Which, by the way, pronouns in the Old Testament can get really funny in the relationship between God and his people. Uh, Moses says, whose people? Your, you, you mean your people, God, right? Not my people, your people. Um, God says, I'm going to wipe them all out, and I'll start over with you, Moses. And, and Moses intercedes, and he says, they're not my people, they're your people. Do you remember the second child of Hosea? Uh, if you're looking for a good dog name, um, Loami, not my people. Um, Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, go now and tell this people, Right? Not my people, this people. 
which makes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, all the more beautiful. Comfort, comfort, you know this, you handle Messiah people. Comfort, comfort, my people, right? So the use of the pronoun is very significant, and God stops Moses in the middle of their conversation on Mount Sinai, and he says, go down to your people, because they've built a calf, and, and they're worshiping it. And he goes down, and Moses hears uh, the sound of battle. And if you do a little lexical work there, you realize it's not a battle sound necessarily that he hears. It's, it's uh, well, let's just say it's NC-17, right? So he's going down there in the middle of whatever's going on, and, he, and, and Moses is absolutely taken back by it. He throws the, the, uh, the, the two tablets of stone down. He confronts Aaron. Aaron makes the most impressive claim that one probably reads in the Bible. I don't know how this all happened. We throw, threw in some gold. We threw in some earrings, a little, some belts, and, and some shoes, and out, out, out comes this golden calf. Um, and we worshiped it because, and this is crucial, because the calf was Adonai who led us out of Egypt. It's a fascinating thing. Well, Moses intercedes for the people, God relents, and in the middle of that moment of intercession, Moses asks this question, will you reveal your glory? And God says, I, I can't let you see my face because you'll die, um, but I'll let you see my back. And then when you move on in the narrative, God, there's a further expansion of the revelation of God's own glory, and it's in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 7. What happens there? Yahweh, Adonai, descends, which is what he does in these theophanic moments. He descends and he comes down to a mountain. He places his foot on the mountain, and while he's there, um, he says, the Lord, the Lord. I mean, I love this text. What, 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 can you imagine someone walking in? Can you imagine Matt Curlin coming in saying, good morning, Matt, Matt. Very glad to have you this morning. It would be strange, but this is what the Lord is doing. He is describing his own name. The Lord, the Lord. And how does the Lord unveil his glory to Moses? Through a full exposition of the implications of his name. I'm merciful, I'm just, I'm long-suffering, I'm patient. What's the identity of God that emerges here? God is merciful and God is severe. That's who he is. I'm merciful. My mercy outweighs my severity. But I'm merciful and I'm severe. That's my identity. And my name is linked with my saving actions toward my people. That's important. The second thing I wanted you to see in the Old Testament from the standpoint of a Trinitarian uh, reflection is the relationship between the one and the many in the Old Testament. The one and the many. A book came out in 2009 by a Jewish scholar named Benjamin Sommer. Um, I, I actually think the book is fascinating. Cambridge University Press won all kinds of awards. And it's called The Bodies of God and the World of Ancient Israel. And what Summer stresses in this book is that in certain streams of the tradition in the Old Testament, Adonai has the ability to differentiate himself from himself without fragmenting his de deity or divine being. So Benjamin Summers identifies this feature of Adonai as, this is his term, the divine fluidity model. For example, Adonai's location at Teman or Hebron may be particular to that place so that Yahweh's presence there differs somewhat from Yahweh's presence at Jerusalem. 
Absalom's trek back to Hebron to make vows to Yahweh there, when Jerusalem was just around the corner, may make some sense of this religious dynamic. Why go all the way back to, T- to, Tebra- to Hebron when um, right around the corner is Jerusalem? Well, because Yahweh is there. So the evidence in the Old Testament for the distinction between Adonai's self at various locations is scant, admittedly. So building a theological or a metaphysical conclusion on the basis of this remains thin. But the relationship between Adonai and the Old Testament and his messenger, his angel, that's another matter. You see, the relationship in the Old Testament between Adonai or Yahweh and the angel of the Lord is of material consequence when attending to the Trinitarian character of the Old Testament. In some instances... The angel of the Lord resists any identification with Adonai's being. But in other instances, as Gerhard von Rod claims, there are those instances which we are not really able to distinguish between Yahweh and his angel, and which therefore do not take the angel as only a messenger, but as a form of manifestation of Yahweh himself. The angel of Yahweh is Yahweh himself. Appearing to human beings in human form, end quote. That was all from Van Rod. So in line with Benjamin Summers' divine fluidity model, certain traditions within the Old Testament narrate the malach, or the messenger's identity, in such a way that differentiating the angel or the messenger from Adonai becomes difficult, if not impossible. As Herman Bovink states, so much is clear That in the angel of the Lord, who is preeminently worthy of that name, God is present in a very special sense. This is evident from the fact that though distinct from Jehovah, this angel of Jehovah bears the same name, has the same power, affects the same deliverance, dispenses the same blessing, and is the object of the same adoration. So the plurality of persons within a unified divine essence remains an Old Testament problem, leaning against the notion that Trinitarian logic is foisted onto the text rather than drawn from it in an act of exegetical realism. So many texts support this. Rublev's notable icon of the Trinity in Genesis 18 the scene of the Akedah on Mount, um, on, on Mount Moriah as, as uh, Abraham has his uh, knife lifted high and the angel of the Lord speaks to uh, Abraham in Yahweh's first-person voice. A similar dynamic is found in the call of Gideon in Judges chapter 6. Who's talking here, Yahweh or the angel? Answer, yes. The blessing of Jacob in Genesis 48 links together the Malaach and Elohim in synonymous parallelism. But the one that's the most interesting to me, and we're going to look at for our last five minutes together, the one that's most interesting to me is this crazy text that, honestly, for the last year has arrested my imagination. Genesis chapter 32, verse 22 and following, we have Jacob wrestling with God at the river, river Jabbok. This is a wild tale. Martin Luther in his commentary on Genesis said, I think that the text in Genesis 32 may be the strangest in all the Bible. I think he's right. By the way, this is an aside. But I think some of these strange texts reside in the Bible, if I can quote C.S. Lewis, to remind us that God is safe 
um, God, is, God is not tame. He's good, but he's not tame and he's not safe. You know that scene in Exodus chapter 4? You want to talk about a crazy scene? God calls Moses and he says, you go meet Aaron in the wilderness and go and tell Pharaoh to let my firstborn son go so that um, he may worship me. And if he doesn't let his, my firstborn son go, then I'm going to kill his firstborn son. And then there's these three verses. And on the way, um, the angel, uh, the Lord tried to kill Moses. But, you know, Zipporah, his wife, I guess she had a travel circumcision bag with her. She circumcises her son real fast, tosses a little bit of the circumcision blood, kind of fun scene, circumcision blood on to Moses. God's anger is thwarted. Next verse, and then Moses met, met Aaron in the wilderness, and they went on their way. You're like, holy cow, what just happened there? Not sure. It's crazy stuff. This is some crazy stuff, too. What happens? Well, Jacob's all alone in the middle of the night. There's irony at every level of this text. He has sent all of his, in an act of enormous courage, <laughs> Jacob has sent all of his family ahead of him to meet Esau, right? And if you remember, the last time that Jacob and Esau had, had, uh, had contacted the one with the other, it wasn't very happy, right? And so now, all of Jacob's scheming character, all of his heel-grabbing instincts, all of his manipulative and wily activity is all directed toward one encounter, and that is, tomorrow I have to see Esau. And if I saw him like I saw him last, then it's the end of me. And the irony of the text is, the encounter that Jacob is about to have the night before he sees Esau is infinitely more dangerous than any encounter that Jacob could ever be, I mean, with Esau could ever be. So here he is, he's all alone by the, on probably the south bank of the Jabbok River. He sent his family aside, uh, to the other side, he's, he's by himself, it's the middle of the night, and a man appears. I, don't you love how laconic the biblical text can be? A man appears and they wrestled until the break of the day. Like, what in the world, right? What, what does it mean? What, what, did he say something about his mom? Um, you know, it's like, what, how did they, why did they come to blows? We don't know. All we know is that under the moon, under that Middle Eastern moon and the riverbank, they're wrestling with one another. And here's the part of the text that gets a little bit uncomfortable. And it was uncomfortable, by the, way, by the way, in the Jewish tradition. This man, this ish that uh, Jacob is wrestling with can't prevail over Jacob. Well, you know, and I know, because when you read Hosea chapter 12, and we won't go there for time, but Hosea chapter 12 identifies this man in one verse as the angel of the Lord and in the next verse as Adonai himself. So who is it that Jacob is wrestling with? He's wrestling with a man who is God. And they wrestle to the brink of the day and the man God can't overtake him. Um, Ibn Ezra, Rashi, medieval Jewish commentators, they, they, they understand this angel here to be maybe the protective angel of Esau or a demonic figure, but it cannot be Adonai. Because Adonai could not be under the full Nelson of, um, of Jacob. But that's what's happening here. And it's spooky. It's uh, vampire-y. The sun's coming up. You need to let me go. I won't even pursue that, but there it is. It's weird. And then um, uh, he touches his hip. And now Jacob realizes that this is a divine encounter. He sees what's going on. And what does Jacob do? Well, Jacob does what Jacob does. He's wily again. I won't let you go until you bless me. I won't give you the soup until you bless me. And then you see the, I don't want to chase the, the, the narrative because it's so fascinating, but the point is, who is the figure that Jacob is, is engaging? 
the figure that Jacob is engaging is at the same time a man, and at the same time, Hosea chapter 12, Adonai himself. So the simple point this morning is, I'm not making a claim that in the mind of any of the Old Testament authors, they thought in terms of your Nicene Creed, right? Or that they would understand terms like homoousios, or persona, or hypostasis, or those types of things that are so important to Trinitarian thought. But what I'm trying to present to you this morning is the fact that the material form of the Old Testament canon itself presents to us a picture of God that demands for us to come to some kind of theological conclusion about that. God is one. Hear, O Israel, right, the Shema. He is one. And at the same time, he can differentiate himself from himself in a plurality of personhood. And that's a problem that the Old Testament itself presents for us as we continue to think about its Trinitarian implications. All right, I'm done. What do you want to talk about? You want to raise any questions about that? A lot of other things to do with the Old Testament and the Trinity, by the way. The presence of word and spirit in the act of creation. The understanding of wisdom. There's, this, there's a scene in Isaiah chapter 52 where the servant... You, you know this text, Isaiah 53 from Good Friday, who has believed our message. The servant there is described as one who is highly exalted, rum venesah. Those two Hebrew terms there are the same Hebrew terms that are predicated on Yahweh in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of the death of the king Uzziah, I saw the Lord rum venesah, high and lifted up. In Isaiah chapter 2, the end of 2, in Isaiah chapter 10, the people of God, they try to room and nassau themselves, and God cups them down. Because only God can be raised and highly exalted. And then in Isaiah chapter 53, we see the servant who's doing that. So, yeah, okay, yes, sir. Right. Well, boy, that's loaded. And it's an important question. And I think it's an unfortunate sort of blemish on the history of the Christian tradition that these things have actually gotten blurred. I mean, I think this is a, a fair point that you make. Um, I do think we have some interesting figures from the 20th century. Gerhard von Rod would be one of those. I think Karl Barth would be another, who are robust Christian theologians in their engagement with the Old Testament, but, but see it as a non-secular to therefore necessarily be anti-Semitic. In other words, that to, to read the Old Testament in a Christian way and to read it as a Christian book doesn't necessitate, number one, anti-Semitism, and it shouldn't necessitate the fact that we can't learn 
from interfaith dialogue from readers of the, of the scriptures. And I'll give you an example. Benjamin Summer, I mentioned him today. Um, if John Levinson, I don't know if you know this name, teaches up at Harvard, Old Testament scholar, Jewish scholar, not a Christian. Um, if John Levinson writes it, I read it. Um, if uh, Moshe Greenberg writes a commentary on Ezekiel, I'm going to engage it because I actually find a lot more affinity to Jewish scholars who have a deep respect for the biblical text rather than Protestant scholars who don't, right? So I find a lot more affinity there. At the same time, though, I do come at this from a Christian confessional standpoint, recognizing that the New Testament and the Old Testament for me are a package. Now, I don't want to fuse them together, and I don't necessarily want to baptize the Old Testament in the language of the New, but they are related to one in such a way that I can't separate the subject matter of the two, the one from the other. And I see them in dialectic relationship to each other. And that's going to mean, I think, at the end of the day, when it comes to subject matter of the text, that that is probably where the conversation will become more problematic for someone like you and myself. I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of things that we will agree on on the material issues of the scriptures. We'll see some of the complexities that are there. But the inferences that we draw from that theologically are probably going to be shaped in very different ways. Sure, please. Sure. It probably doesn't. It probably doesn't. No, it probably doesn't. And that's, again, you know, this is where the relationship between a monotheistic faith and a Trinitarian conception of what monotheism is, is probably at the end of the day going to be a confliction of worldviews. And I hope that means we can sit at the table and drink coffee and talk about it. Uh, you know, I hope it doesn't lead to violence. It shouldn't. Uh, but at the same time, I do think at the end of the day, there is, there is a confliction of worldview here when it comes to a conceptuality of oneness and plurality. Yeah. Anything else you want to bat around? Matt told me not to dismiss you yet. There would be awkward silence, and then you would think of things. Um, anything you want to ask, bat around? Anything you're angry about? Okay. Well, for me, you know, it fits into my pedagogy from beginning to end, and that's, and that's in a concerted effort to try to overcome some of the interpretive sensibilities that I learned as well in this very similar context. And that's, that's in no way to disparage the enormous achievements that modern criticism has brought to the table 
enormous achievements. I mean, Brevard Childs is famous for saying, say what you want to about historical criticism, but at least people are reading Amos again, right? Um, so I think that there's, one has to affirm that. The problem is, within the modern period, and I put Spinoza at the lead here, within the modern period, the literal sense of the Bible became equated with its historical sense. Those two became conflated. Um, whereas I think that the literal sense itself is something that's, that's governed by the grammar of the text itself. It's governed by the, the given verbal reality. But the literal sense of the Bible is never abstracted from its divine subject matter. I can't do that. I'll appeal to John Levinson again. Levinson has written a great article on this. I can't abstract the biblical words themselves from the subject matter of the Bible, which is conceived of confessionally. So when it comes to historical moment and particularity, when it comes to background information in ancient Near Eastern world, I find all of those issues to be very helpful. But what's happened in modernity is those issues have come to the front seat of the hermeneutical car, and that's where they've been placed. I'd like to keep them in the back seat. They can illustrate, they can help um, uh, uh, open up some, what's a cow of Bashan? Uh, what's an oak of Mamre? I mean, there's certain just bare facts about the language and the cultural distance that demand some kind of work, ex excavatory work, to understand what's there. But that doesn't necessitate the fact that, um, that that's the end of the subject matter or the end of the discussion. So now one has to think about, well, how is this related to a larger biblical theological frame? And that, that's the sort of in and out that one does. Anybody else? You're dismissed. For more information about Samford University, check out samford.edu.